In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying um, in the book of Exodus. Um, last week we had a break from the book of Exodus, um, but the, the previous week we had uh, studied chapters 13 and 14, which focused um, primarily on the actual crossing of the Red Sea. So today we're going to um, start with chapter 15, which is immediately after the crossing of the Red Sea, and there is the famous um, hymn of victory that uh, Mariam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, is singing, um, uh, praising God for the deliverance from the Egyptians um, after they had crossed the Red Sea. So we'll start with that today. Um, one point about this song. Um, so this song, uh, which is in the first 19 verses uh, of the chapter, this is uh, the same as and where we get the first host or the first canticle and the midnight praises. So if anyone is familiar with the midnight praises, um, there are four canticles that we chant in the midnight praises. The first canticle is essentially verbatim this song of victory um, that uh, is chanted here after the crossing of the Red Sea. And this song, um, as we said, everything about the story of the Exodus has a spiritual meaning behind it. So just as we said that Pharaoh represents Satan, and that the people represent us, like our, our spirits who are enslaved to Satan, and then we are redeemed and saved and set free, and then we are baptized in the Red Sea, and we cross over, and we are rejoicing because of the salvation that God has given to us. So this song um, symbolizes the song of those who are redeemed in heaven, um, whom the ones whom the Lord has saved, and we, we read about this salvation in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. It says, what they sing the song of Moses. This is speaking about the heavenlies, right? It says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. So just as in the revelation that was given to St. John in the book of Revelation, he sees in heaven those who are victorious and those who have been redeemed chanting, and they say what? Singing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So this is, again, the first uh, 19 verses is the, is the song of Moses, and then actually, yeah, the song of Miriam is, is immediately after that. Um, this song, it, it emphasizes the redemptive work of God in us. So God is granting us daily, like, the, the power over Satan, like overcoming temptation, overcoming evil on a daily basis. And so we are, like, singing this song along with them for the triumph and the victory that we have over temptation. Um, and, and also this song was sung um, only after the baptism, right? So remember we said the crossing of the Red Sea represents baptism. So this song was chanted after the symbolic baptism that happened in the Red Sea, just as in our spiritual life, the baptism is the beginning of a new life where we are now victorious and joyful. So also here in this situation, in this case, in the book of Exodus, this song is chanted after the spiritual baptism that the people have after they cross. So it says what? Then Moses and the children of Israel sang the song to the Lord and spoke, saying. So again, I misspoke before. This isn't the song of Miriam. This is the song of Moses. The song of Miriam is after. Um, so again, this is the beginning of the joy that comes upon us when we have destroyed Satan. When Satan has, has been crushed under our feet as the Lord gave us the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. And, and so here we are, we are singing along with them. 
And this is why we chanted in the midnight praises, because it's not just something that happened historically thousands of years ago, but it's something that we live on a daily basis as believers that are benefiting from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Um, St. Gregory of Nyssa, the bishop of Nyssa, he believed that whoever walks in this life of virtue will be like lightweight. So think about like the spirit. Um, actually, the, the spirit is the same word for like the wind, right? And so it's like something that is spiritual is lightweight. It's not weighed down by the world. It's not weighed down by the worldly desires. So anything that is spiritual is considered to be like light and weight. And so St. Gregory of Nyssa, he is referring here in this hymn when it's speaking about they sank to the bottom like a stone, the sinking to the bottom is the opposite. So the sinking to the bottom represents like a wicked person who is heavy, who is sinking down in the water to the very depths um, of the sea. Whereas a person who is virtuous is light, they float, they, they can fly like a cloud or a dove. Also in verse 10, we also uh, read in the same song it says they sank like lead in the mighty waters so the sinking down again represents like the destruction of the wicked and the rising up represents the salvation of the righteous your right hand O lord has become glorious in power your right hand O lord has dashed the enemy in pieces saint ambrose actually he sees in this song the work of the trinity so when it says your right hand this right hand of God refers to the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father. So this is like the Son, okay? Um, and also later on when uh, in, in verse 10, when he's speaking about the wind, he says what? You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. And, and in this case, he's speaking, referring to the Holy Spirit. So, so St. Ambrose, he sees like um, metaphorically and like in a hidden meaning inside this song is the work of God as a trinity, the right hand of God who is the Son, the Lord who is God the Father, and then later on in verse 10, speaking about the blowing of the wind, the wind who separated the, the Red Sea symbolically as representing the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit specifically in the, in the sacrament of baptism. Because in, in, in the sacrament of baptism and in the rite of baptism, we believe that the Holy Spirit comes upon the water to sanctify it. This is why before the baptism happens, there is a period which actually most of the time people are not even present, and it's usually just the priest by themselves, um, which is called the consecration of the waters. The consecration of the waters is a prayer that's done on the water itself to prepare it and to sanctify it for the work of baptism for when the person comes to be baptized. And just as here the Holy Spirit is like blowing on the surface of the water to separate the water. Also, the Holy Spirit is working in the sacrament of baptism to cast out the enemy and, and for the salvation of God's people. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. 
the depths congealed and the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. So this is the thinking of the enemy, right? It gives us insight into the way that the enemy th thinks. He's saying what? I will pursue. Like, I am not going to let this person go. Like, one thing about the devil is he's so patient that, you know, even if we think that we have escaped from him, even if we think that we have overcome a specific sin, and yet the devil is still always waiting to drag us back into that sin again, he is pursuing us. He is chasing after us. He wants to devour us, overtake us. And he says, what, I will divide the spoil. Like, he, he's going to, to take every aspect of us, every part of us, and to divide us like a reward, like, like someone who receives a reward and divides it up. Um, his desire, my, or saying, my desire shall be satisfied on them. The, 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 the devil wants to consume us. This is his desire. His desire and his joy and his satisfaction comes from our destruction and his coming to attack us with the sword and to destroy and to terrorize and to persecute us as the children of God. Then the song continues. It says, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Nobody is like God. Here there's this rhetorical question they're asking. Who is like you? Who is like you? Even all the other peoples and nations at the time that believed in their own gods, no god had ever done anything similar to this at all. No, nobody had seen anything like this. You know, all of those peoples who believed in these other gods, just like the Egyptians themselves, God was proving to them time and time again that he was greater than the gods of the Egyptians. And he wasn't just greater in the physical aspects of like his power and his miracles and those things, but he is greater in his love and he is greater in his desire to save those who have fallen away from him. That just as the devil is pursuing us, so also you can see that in the scripture from the very beginning all the way to the end, it's the pursuit of God for his people. This is the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God from the very beginning pursuing us to bring us back again to himself. So no one is like God. Who is like God who continues to pursue his people even though they time and time again have shown that they are um, unworthy and that they are deceiving and they are rejecting him and yet he continues um, to seek after him. No one is as incomprehensible as God. Um, you know, we, we speak about God in this way when we speak about him in the liturgy. We say that he is incomprehensible, he's imperceptible, he's unchangeable, he is without beginning and without end. Um, and, I, and I wanted to maybe um, say a little bit of an aside about this. So there's two ways um, that you can speak about God. There's one which is sometimes called negative theology, which I don't like that term because it just sounds negative. It doesn't sound good. Um, or it's called apophatic theology. And in the apophatic way of speaking about God, it's we're speaking about what he is not rather than what he is. Okay, so when we say God is timeless, he is without time, right? We say God is incomprehensible. He is beyond our comprehension, right? When we say God is unchangeable, so same saying what he is not. He is not something that changes. And the reason we, we, we prefer to speak about God in this way is because um, we, we, when you speak about him in the reverse, 
like what the reverse is called cataphatic. Cataphatic or the positive theology is you're speaking about something that maybe you can relate to something else which is actually limiting to God, right? So for instance, um, when we say that God is almighty, right? Of course, we can say about God that he's almighty. Almighty is a positive statement that we say about God. But there are other things that in the mind of a person they might also consider to be almighty. Our minds are limited to comprehend how mighty God actually is. So when we say that God is almighty, it's actually not fully speaking about the extent of God's characteristics. Because maybe we look at many things in the world and we say this is mighty, right? But when I say something that God is not, okay, I can understand that he is like the complete opposite of such a thing, right? And so we tend to, in the church, speak about God using this apophatic theology or this negative theology because ultimately for us as human beings God is unknowable and there is no human terms or vocabulary that we can use to fully describe him right so in order to prevent us from limiting God and limiting our understanding of God we prefer to use this um, apophatic theology rather than the cataphatic um, theology so here again in the song he's saying who is like you no one is like you right how can we can't even describe you? All we can say is that no one is like you. Okay. Um, in First John chapter three, it says, "What beloved? Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is." Or the verse that says, "No eye has seen." nor ear heard, nor has come into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. It's like focusing on what it has not been revealed or we do not understand. The extent of God is beyond human comprehension. And so while there, yes, there are many examples of the cataphatic statements, like the positive theology statements about God. So for instance, when we say God is love, right? God is love. It's a positive statement about God. But even that statement... Um, it, it, it's difficult because what is love? Each person might have a different comp you know, understanding of what love is. And actually the world has corrupted love, has corrupted the word, has corrupted the meaning of love. So when someone says God is love, even though this is the description that the scripture gives about God himself. And yet when people hear God is love, what are they really thinking? Maybe each person has a different understanding of what God is love means. Some people will say, well, God is love. That means God cannot punish. Some people will say God is love. It means God is going to accept everything that we do because God is love. It's a twisted, corrupted form of love when we say that because people's understanding of love is wrong. So when we speak about God in the, in the opposite way, we're saying he is beyond comprehension. We focus on his unlimited nature. Yes. So when you're saying the... The negative theology is because we can't fully understand him and we'll never get there. What's the difference between that and like what agnostics say? Where like we will never know. Now, agnostics, they they don't they they say we don't even know if God exists. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. We're not we're not we're not applying it to whether God exists. We're saying the extent of the, and the magnitude of his positive characteristics are beyond our comprehension. Okay. Right. So even like when we say, for instance, God is omnipotent. Right. What does that even mean? We can't even begin to comprehend what omnipotent is, even like when you try to, to envision anything that's infinite, you know, like like I I what is infinite? 
you know it's hard for us to 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 comprehend to comprehend that and that's why we we again we we're not applying it to the existence of god we're applying it to his characteristics yeah you stretched out your right hand oh sorry yes okay um so this is a question i've i've been sort of grappling with for a while um so the cataphatic phrase God is love. So uh, I, I've, I've heard people say that before. I don't know whether we say that within the church. You say we use it less, cataphatic theology. But would we say that, firstly? God is yes, love. Yes, actually, the Bible says that. Okay. Yeah, I'm not saying that's wrong. Okay. Right. Sure. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just saying why we use the apophatic theology and the, the reasoning behind it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, the particular question with regard to that for me has been when we say God is love I that we when we say we we can't be meaning that well love pre-exists God but love like is is love like a characteristic of God or is it who like is that his like essence like what he is I guess love or what is love in relationship to God when we say that it's saying that love exists because of God's existence. The reason love exists is because God exists. So if God did not exist, well, obviously nothing would exist, but the very nature of God is love. And this is why even when we say that God is love and when we speak about God being Trinity, okay, we believe that God loves himself in within the, the persons of the Trinity, that there is love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, so, the manifestation of God is love in the world. So whenever you see there is genuine, sincere love, this is because of God's existence, because of God's presence, because of God's work, even in those people who are not Christian, right? Like, like we are all made in the image of God, whether we believe in God or not. We are made in the image of God, and we have certain characteristics of God, right? Whether we believe in him or not. Whether we understand why we are the way that we are or not, we are a certain way because we are made in the image of God. And when we, even each of us has a tendency to love. Of course, there's a lot of hate in the world and there's a lot of selfishness in the world. Um, and those are the that is the corrupted image of God, right? That is, that is the original image that God has made us in has been corrupted and instead we have been deceived and we manifest selfishness um, because of our sin. But the true nature of each of us that God has made us in is to love. And so we all can understand what is love. We recognize love when we see it. We, 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 we recognize that love is a noble thing. We recognize that love is selfless, right? Anyone, anyone can look at it and say this is selfless love, right? We, we comprehend it regardless of whether you are a religious person, not religious, what religion you are. There is something about love that makes us to, to see it as noble and good, right? So he's saying that is a characteristic of God. It is not the only characteristic. But, okay. So, but uh, but God cannot be loved. Cannot not be loving, right? Like He is loving, and it's like the reason I, I wondered this is just is that question. Uh, if, if if love is a characteristic of God, is there any point when He cannot be loving? No. Okay. Right. There is no way that God cannot be loving. Just like in the scripture when it also says God cannot lie. Okay. 
So God cannot lie. God is truth, right? So there is no way for God to lie. It is, it is, it is against His own nature. So it is impossible for Him to lie. Just as, but, but, when when we say that God is love, we also have to understand what it means because the Scripture also says that God hates things, yeah. right? Saying that God is love doesn't mean that God unconditionally loves everything, right? Okay. Because He doesn't love evil, and He doesn't love things that are wicked. Right. So what does it mean when we say that God is love? What is it that he loves? Well, he loves human beings, but he doesn't love everything that we do. Right. So so we have to understand what is what does it mean when it says God is love? And that's the one of the twisted, corrupted ways that the world has taken the idea of love to say that essentially if we love, that means we have to love everything. We can't distinguish. We can't judge an action. We can't judge an idea. We just have to say, because we love people, we accept absolutely everything that everyone does. And that is not God. God has a certain moral standard. God defines what is right and wrong, right? Um, but he even loves those who do wrong. So we can say that even his rejection of evil is, is love. love. Yes. Because he cares for us and wants not evil for us. Yes. He protects us from evil. Okay. Yeah. It's like uh, something I've uh, like realized recently is that like love, like it's opposite. It's not hate, um, but like if you love something, you, ha you have to hate its opposite as well. So God, if God loves loves uh, uh, us as uh, His children, He would hate anything that separates us from Him. Yeah, which is sin, right? So exactly right. Any other comments about that? Okay. <coughs> so here in this verse, verse twelve it says, "You stretched out." your right hand, the earth swallowed them. The earth has like a connotation of, again, being fleshly, carnal, uh, temporary, wicked, right? So the idea of the earth swallowing the Egyptians, swallowing the enemies of God, it's like the wicked are being swallowed up by the earth because they love the earth. Like they didn't want to go to heaven. They didn't want to be in heaven with God. Instead, they wanted to remain on the earth, and so thus the earth swallowed them, right? They didn't look to heaven and desire it. They didn't have the fear of God. They didn't, they didn't care about the judgments of God. All they cared about was their own judgments, and so the earth was their dominion, you know? The earth was their domain, and so the earth swallowed them. Um, the earth swallowing a person kind of means like a person is consumed with their thoughts or consumed about the earth, you know? And, and we find ourselves sometimes falling into this trap is... We become so consumed with the earth, so consumed of the ways of the world, that we forget the ways of God. We forget to spend time with God. We forget the judgments of God and the wisdom of God and maybe focus more and more on the wisdom of the earth. Even when the, the earthly, fleshly ways are contrary to God, we find ourselves sometimes just kind of carried away with the society, carried away with you know, the judgments of man. And we find ourselves maybe far away from the judgments of God. This is why we should always refer everything back to the scripture, refer back everything to what God has commanded, what God has asked us to be. He doesn't want us to be consumed with the earth. The earth is temporary. He said what flesh is like grass. Flesh is something that is burned. Flesh is something that, that is, not, um, is not eternal, does not last. And so God doesn't want us to be attached to something that is going to be destroyed, but he wants us to rise up above it so that when this destruction comes upon the earth, then we are not destroyed with it. 
You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till, your, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. So here in, the, in verse 13, speaking about the redemption of God, that God has led us in his mercy away from destruction, away from those people of the earth, away from the slavery of sin and Egypt, that God has freed us from them so that we do not have to suffer the same consequence, punishment as them. And yet we have been freed from the bondage of slavery. So he has redeemed us and he has guided us where? To a holy habitation. And this holy habitation is the place for us to live and dwell with God which is what we are seeking. Then he says here about the people of Philistia, the, the people who are living in the land of Canaan, all of the people that the Israelites are going to encounter when they come into the land of Israel. And what is it that is they are going to, to experience? It says fear and dread will fall on them because those people, when the Israelites come into the land of Canaan, are going to know the reputation of these people. These are They are going to know that these are the people whom God had led out of Egypt by crossing over the Red Sea and has consumed and destroyed the Egyptians. So when the Israelites come to the Canaanites, they're going to be afraid of them because of what they know about them. Um, and God is going to command that the Israelites go and destroy all of these people who are living there in the land um, of Canaan. So they are dreading, they are afraid of the coming of the Israelites. Also here when it says, till the people pass over, the, the passing over is the passing from death to life, right? The passing from death to life. And here also the passing into the promised land or for us spiritually passing into the promised land. So, so the, the people are, um, are, are, like, are in dread and fear because the Israelites are passing over into their land, which is the promised land. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Right? God has established his sanctuary in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. This is where the temple is to be built. And it is built on a mountain, Mount Zion, which is where the city of Jerusalem is to be built. Again, none of that has happened yet at this point, right? So God is, is wanting to uproot them from the love of the world, which is in Egypt, represented by Egypt, and to plant them high up on a mountain, which is representing that it is like in heaven, like it is, it is with God, far away from the earth. So Jerusalem is like the city of God that is built up high on a mountain, spiritually representing being in heaven or close to God. And, and Egypt represents a place of sin. So God is taking them out of this place of sin and planting them up in the sanctuary of God, which is up in the heavens. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. 
So the Lord is preserving the people in the midst of the wicked, the wickedness of the world, which is something always important for us to remember, because sometimes we as believers think and feel that we have been consumed by the world, that we have been overcome by the world, that the world um, has set us aside and maybe sees those who are uh, believe in God as being superstitious, as being delusional, as being irrelevant, um, persecuted, um, not caring at all for our beliefs. Um, and so sometimes we feel like in the world we have been um, we have been discarded and that people do not share our morals, our ideals, our values. And yet here it says what the Lord will reign forever and ever. And the Lord is conquering sin and conquering evil and conquering those people who are worldly and fleshly to bring success and victory to his own people. In Philippians chapter 2, St. Paul speaks about that we would live blamelessly um, in the midst of this evil generation. He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word, word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Even at that time, long ago, there was still this problem that as the church, as the believers who are trying to live according to the tenets and precepts of God, blameless and harmless, without fault, and yet they are trying to do so in the midst of what a crooked and perverse generation. So, you know, it is not the case that nowadays we are in a, in a very unique time experiencing a kind of persecution or suffering or, or wickedness uh, around us that is unique and has never happened ever. No, it's happened. It's been. Uh, and, 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 you know, all throughout different societies, all throughout the history of the world, um, Christians have been persecuted. And so here, speaking to the Philippians, um, St. Paul is telling them the same. We are to live blameless and harmless without fault, and, and we are to do this in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights, right? Like our role is to shine as lights, not to be like the wicked, not to be like the crooked and perverse, not to blend in, but instead to shine as lights. And of course, when we shine as lights, holding fast to the word of life, that might entail persecution. That might entail people attacking us. That certainly will entail that we stand out and that we are not blending in with everyone else. So we cannot walk among the wicked and become wicked because it is like those who are, are instead of passing through the Red Sea, on dry land, it is like instead those who have been consumed by the sea, those who have been caught up by the sea and are, are drowning in the, in the waters of the sea. But instead, we as believers walk on the dry land representing that we are um, free from sin, that we are living righteously, that we are seeking the, the commandments of God and choosing to live by them. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, this is now the song of Miriam, um, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So she is like reiterating the song among the women um, and, and singing to the Lord um, with the same words that was said in the song of Moses. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. St. Jerome, he sees Miriam, who was the sister of Aaron, as a spiritual leader of the women at the time. Um, and she is a living portrait of the work of the women in the church who dedicate their life to praise God and to teach others to do um, that as well. So um, he sees in her like, like, a, like a symbol of the devout and pure and righteous woman in the church. Also, St. Ambrose, he sees in her 
um, like uh, a portrait of the church itself who is constantly praising God. And he says this um, about about the virgin, St. Ambrose. He says, Was she not a type of the church who as a virgin with unstained spirit joins together the religious gatherings of the people to sing divine songs? For we read that there were virgins appointed also in the temple at Jerusalem. So um, he, he, he's speaking about her kind of representing the church as a whole, praising God. Um, and in the same, uh, in the same uh, book, he's also writing about um, the procession of Miriam as representing a heavenly procession. Like when she is leading these people proce- proceeding in, in song. Um, it is like a heavenly pres- procession of the heavenly that are rejoicing and, and seeing that the earthly um, are being converted to the heavenly. So like the people who are of the earth are being set free um, from their bondage of sin and slavery and going rising up to heaven. And so there is rejoicing in heaven, just as um, in the scripture it says that angels rejoice whenever someone is repenting and turning from their sin. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. So Marah is a Hebrew word for bitterness. Actually, it's also in Arabic. The same word, uh, Murra, means bitterness, right? So that is, they found this water after three days of thirst, and but this water they could not drink from it because the waters were bitter. And so the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So this wandering in the wilderness, so so again, from a spiritual perspective, the people had pass through the waters of the Red Sea, which is baptism, and they are rejoicing now at their redemption and their salvation that God has given them. Um, but they are wandering. They're, they're going now these three days in the wilderness. And this three days of, of thirst is represents like afflictions and sufferings that we experience when we are doing the work of God in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation um, in the world in which we are living. So the initial joy that the people had Um, after they had seen the miraculous work of God in their lives and the salvation from the Egyptians having passed through the Red Sea, that initial joy at this time now had kind of faded, and now they are thinking more about their physical needs. Um, They begin to experience real-life challenges. And this we see it in the life of a person who is coming newly to the church. At the beginning of their spiritual walk, they feel maybe a lot of joy, a lot of acceptance. They feel like there is a new life. There is, there is something before them that they want to walk and be faithful in it, um, going from being a catechumen to being a believer. And yet now, as a believer, um, kind of real life begins to set in, and they realize that there is still challenges, there are still struggles, and actually the struggle of remaining pure, the struggle to live according to God's commandments is a difficult struggle. Um, And so we begin to experience these real-life challenges that require real-life sacrifices, maybe changes of lifestyle, changes of people that um, I am am with, and so on. So so, um, some people um, believe that these waters represent the commandments of the law. So, So it's like the law, the law of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it brought bitterness upon the people because the people were unable to follow them. God gave them all these commandments in the Old Testament, 
the people were unable to follow them, which is why they were in need of salvation. So some people say that these waters, these bitter waters, uh, represent these commandments of the law that bring bitterness. And in this case, the tree, right, he's saying, take a tree, show them this tree, and you cast the tree into the waters, and then the waters were made sweet. So what does this tree represent? In this case, the tree would represent Christ, because Christ is like the tree of life who entered the law and made it spiritual and drinkable to the soul. This is saying Christ took the law of the Old Testament and he made us to be able to fulfill it spiritually, right? And he, and he took away the judgment against us from the, our inability to follow the law. And, and the Lord is often depicted as a kind of a plant or a branch. In Isaiah 53, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root on dry ground. Also in Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. And in Isaiah 11, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. So many of the prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament refer to him as a kind of a plant, a branch, a root, okay? And so, so this branch or this tree here that is being thrown into these bitter waters represents Christ who is taking the law and he's making it spiritual for us to be able to benefit from it and to follow it. Also, St. Paul, um, he speaks about the difference between this, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking about Christ, he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Again, the same meaning. The, l the literal letter of the law of the Old Testament brought death upon the people because it brought condemnation. No one was able to follow the law. And yet, when the Lord came to fulfill the law, to complete the law, and to give us the spiritual meaning of the law, this became to us a life-giving law rather than a law that kills the letter that kills. So again, in this interpretation, understanding that these waters represent, um, the bitterness of the waters represent the, the commandment of the Old Testament, the Lord came to give us a spiritual benefit, a spiritual meaning, to make the waters sweet so that we can drink from them. There are other church fathers who see that the tree represents the cross itself. So the cross works in the waters of baptism to transform our life from being bitter to sweet. So like a person who comes to be baptized in the water or is able to be baptized because of the work of Christ that he did on the cross. So the work of Christ on the cross turned the waters of baptism to be a benefit to us and to make our lives go from bitter being bitter to being sweet. So instead of carrying the works of the old man, we enjoy the new nature that we acquired in Christ. And St. Ambrose, he speaks about this. He says, Mara, remember this is the waters of Mara. Mara was a fountain of most bitter water. Moses cast wood into it and it became sweet. For water without the preaching of the cross of the Lord is of no avail for future salvation. But after it has been consecrated by the mystery of the saving cross, it is made suitable for the use of the spiritual layer and of the cup of salvation. As then Moses, that is the prophet, cast wood into that fountain, so too the priest utters over this font the proclamation of the Lord's cross, and the water is made sweet for the purpose of grace. So the sanctification of this water through the cross of the Lord for the sake of salvation. 
One very interesting thing here that he says, St. Ambrose, he says, For water without the preaching of the cross of the Lord is of no avail for future salvation. It is, it is the focus of the Christian faith is on the cross of the Lord. I, I found this article speaking about um, how, how now the, 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 the most prevalent form of Christianity in America is, is a fake Christianity. It's a Christianity that focuses mostly on social doing social good and social justice. It's a Christianity that focuses on therapy. It's like, how, how can I benefit through my religion to feel better about myself? Um, it's focusing on morals. So, f yes, we are speaking about right and wrong. Um, we believe in God, but we don't necessarily feel that God is uh, intimately involved in our life. It said that it was deistic, deism being that God exists and he created everything, but he kind of just let everything run according to its own uh, process without being kind of involved in it. There are many people who say about themselves that they're Christians, where really all that they're thinking about is, how can I enjoy my life and feel fulfilled and feel, yes, there exists a God, but I'm not in the habit of praying, I'm not in the habit of really speaking to him or feeling that he is involved in my life, I just believe that he exists. And yes, I believe in doing good, uh, and I believe that Christianity is beneficial to me as a person because it makes me feel better about myself, it helps me to deal with my problems, um, and so on. Here he's saying what the water without the preaching of the cross of the Lord is of no avail for future salvation. This is why in our church we focus so much on the message of the cross because we cannot separate the, the actual uh, crucifixion, the sacrifice that Christ made, the incarnation of the Lord, the resurrection from what we are doing. We are not doing what we are doing simply because we feel good about ourselves or because we want to live as good people, as good moral people, or because we believe God exists in a very generic, general sense. We believe specifically that, the, that our God incarnate as the Lord Jesus Christ on earth and that he was um, crucified for our salvation. So, so very much our faith is, is, is a very personal one where we believe that we have a personal relationship with God as opposed to it just being kind of a generic faith, um, believing in a God that's kind of distant and far away. And our, our role as, as Christians is one that entails personal sacrifice, and it's not just about me. It's not just about what I can benefit from the church and what I can benefit from God and what I can benefit from my prayer, but it's a, it's a, it's a desire to give back to this God who I believe sacrificed himself for me. So this is why I'm willing to sacrifice myself. This is the, what the martyrs were about. The martyrs were about not what can I get from God, but what can I give to God because of his great love for me. Do you have a question? Yeah. So, uh, you mentioned that the culture now is, is, uh, is more about like a um, self-driven culture and uh, of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, I had a discussion lately with a friend and... Um, uh, highlighted in Romans uh, 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 2, verse 14, says, uh, when uh, Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires, these do not, these, though, uh, not having the law are a law to themselves. They show that, it, that what the law requires is written on their hearts, to which their own co conscience also bears witness, 
and their conflicting thoughts will accuse or perhaps excuse them on the day when, the, when according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. So does that mean that those who just like uh, judge the situations it, by their instinct of what is right and what is wrong, that that could be to- a lot to them when, when in the judgment day of, of what should be done or, or not should have, have been done? Um, yeah, so he's saying that kind of like what I was saying before, we're all made in the image of God. And so placed within us is a moral compass that God has placed within us. And so for those people who have not received the law from God, meaning they have not, they have not directly heard from God what is it that they should do, and yet are operating according to their conscience, that if they um, follow their conscience, that this is something that God praises and that God will judge them accordingly, even though they do not have the law. Like an example of this is like Cornelius. You know, Cornelius from the book of Acts. Cornelius was a Roman centurion. And he was not a Jewish man. But it says about him that he was praying and he was giving alms and he was doing all these things that the law would command a Jewish person to do even though he was not Jewish. And so God saw him that he was worthy of salvation, the first among the Gentiles, so that he sent uh, an angel to go and to appear to him and essentially had St. Peter come and preach to him and he received the Holy Spirit. And it was the first time that St. Peter and the other apostles realized that salvation was even being offered to the Gentiles. So on what basis was he chosen in order for this grace? It was based on the fact that he was living according to the law that he understood, according to his conscience, according to what had been placed in him. As I said before, like God places within us um, a, a sense of right and wrong. And, you know, we always speak about how... Um, you know, how is God going to judge those people who are maybe living in places that have, you know, never grew up as Christians, growing up in an atheistic country, never had the same opportunities? God is not going to judge everyone equally in the sense that, you know, the, 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 the scripture says what to he to he who much is given, much will be required. Right. So for those people who have been given the opportunity to be raised in the church and to learn the Bible and to read the Bible and to all the, maybe the judgment of God will be one way upon these people because they had so many opportunities to, gr- to do right and to learn the will of God. But to those who have been given less, maybe God's judgment will be different. I'm not trying to say what his judgment is, but he is saying that he takes into account what is it that people know, what is it that people, what opportunities people have had. And so even when we speak about the question of what about the salvation of these people who have not grown up in any kind of Christian environment? And again, I'm not trying to say that I know the answer to that. But what I am saying is that if a person is following and obeying their conscience that God has placed in each person, then maybe God will, over time, lead that person to the fullness of the truth. But if a person is rejecting even the conscience that they have been given, right, then even if God were to present them with the fullness of the truth, then maybe they would reject it if they don't even follow their own internal conscience. So, so, so yes, he's, he's speaking about uh, the judgment is based on, um, uh, not ju- on what we've been given. It's based on what we've been given. Um, um, one person might be given more, they will be judged more harshly. That's why also it says, um, do not desire to be a teacher. 
because those who are teachers will be judged more harshly. Why? Because a person who's a teacher, a person who understands the scripture very well, a person who is a role model, a person who um, you know, has less of an excuse to fall into sin or less, an ex- less of an excuse to be ignorant of the commandments of God. This is why the judgment is harsher. So yes, the, the judgment of God is, is based on each individual person's situation. Does that answer your question? Okay, no problem. If you if you if you remember, you can ask. Okay. Um. Yeah. So he said, there he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So he's they've thrown the the tree now into the water, and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight. Give uh, ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where uh, there were twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, so they camped there by the waters. Okay? So, <coughs> first God is telling them essentially as a test, and he's saying, if you follow my commandments and you do what I say, then I will preserve you and protect you and none of these diseases and none of the things that have happened to the Egyptians will happen to you. And then they came to this place that had 12 wells and 70 palm trees. So if Mara, the place that they were before, represents the law, which became spiritual through the cross, through the work of Christ, and to become like baptism and a sacrament for us, um, then this Elim, or Elim, is like the next phase or the next place that they go from the law and the Old Testament to uh, the New Testament where they found what? Twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees. What do these wells of water and palm trees represent? What is twelve? Yeah, so the twelve disciples and the seventy apostles. Okay, so this is what the church fathers say these represent. Um, Origen, the scholar, Okay, he says that God purposely did not bring the people to here to this place from the beginning, right? He said he first brought them to the bitter place, the Mara, right, which is like represents the bitterness of the law that turns sweet by the tree of life, so that then they shall comprehend the law spiritually and then cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So Mara represented the Old Testament, and after it had been made sweet by the work of Christ and the work of the cross, they now came to the New Testament, okay? Again, wh- which is the, the, real, the real story, hi- historically, is that the Old Testament, Christ was incarnate, was crucified, salvation and redemption came upon man, and then they are now in the period of the New Testament, which is the period that we are in now, which is a place where we meet with the 12 disciples and the 70 um, apostles. <coughs> um, Any questions about chapter 15? Okay. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So how long have we been now since they departed from Egypt? 
Huh? Okay, close, yes. What, what was the day of the Passover? Remember, the Passover happened when? Did they practice the Passover when they were in Egypt or after they had left? In Egypt. It was like right before they leave, right? And what day was that? The beginning of the calendar? So first it was the first month of the calendar. Remember, he said that was to be the first month of their calendar. But do you remember what day? What day is the Passover? The first month is called what? It's called Abib. Oh yeah. What What is the day of the month of Abib that the Passover was practiced? 15th? 14th. 14th. Close. So 14th of Abib is, which is the first month, that is when they held the Passover. And now we're of the 15th of the second month. So it's been essentially one month. Okay? So there's been one month since they have left Egypt. Okay? Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Okay. See, they, they went from being joyful and dancing and singing to, okay, now they're thirsty, but then God gave them water to drink, to now we wish we were dead. Like that's the extent of, of the complaining now that they have is they're so, they, they just wish that they had died by the hand of the Lord in the Egypt and why are you bringing us here? And what does this kind of illustrate? You know, there are times when we feel very spiritual and we feel very serene and we feel very tranquil and we feel like we are with God and maybe it's on a Sunday and we leave church and we feel like God is the center of our life and we're so happy and we want to be with God and all this. But then something happens, something that disturbs us, something that bothers us. And we completely forget all that talk about God and serenity and tranquility and goodness. And we transition to just being angry or lustful or hungry or complaining or jealous or whatever. Whatever temptation we experience makes us to forget all of that calm and tranquil and peaceful feelings that maybe we had before. And this certainly here is what these people are experiencing they're hungry they're really hungry and they want to eat and that hunger that they're feeling they don't care anything they don't care that they crossed over the red sea they don't care that god is like talking to them they don't care about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire they don't care about anything that's ever happened to them all they care about is they want to eat food which says something about us maybe especially during the fast is when we get really hungry and want to eat food Okay, and we forget everything. Okay, this here, like, like this has completely changed their, their thoughts. Completely changed. Whatever initial joy they had, completely gone. Nothing about being protected from the Egyptians. Nothing about salvation, freed from slavery. None of that matters. All they want to do is eat. Okay? And so one of the greatest obstacles to our faith that we experience is the desire of the flesh. The desire of the flesh is so powerful. It is so powerful. It can completely transform us to be a completely different person, right, as you can see here. And this is why we have to be very careful, okay? And the issue here is not so much the hunger, but it revealed something about them. The hunger brought out something about their character. 
that they are a, have a grumbling, complaining character. This is a, a weakness inside of them. It became manifested when they experienced this hunger. You know, sometimes people, maybe people as they grow older, um, and maybe someone who is like grown up in the church, as they grow older, as they go to college, as they have to work on their own, as they experience different kinds of stresses in their life and all this, a lot of times people look and they say, you know what, I'm less spiritual than I was before. I'm less spiritual. I was more spiritual before, and now I'm less spiritual. I used to pray more before, and now I pray less. I used to be more patient before, and now I'm less patient, you know. And maybe in some cases, obviously, people change. But a lot of times, it's not that we've changed. It's that we are discovering who we really are because the situation around us has reached to such a stress level that maybe we never experienced before. The burden on us is greater. The responsibility on us is greater. The challenge on us is greater. And that brings to the surface our hidden weaknesses that have always been there, but we had never been challenged enough in order to really see them, to notice them, to realize that's who I really am all along. It's not that I was super spiritual before. It's that I wasn't tested enough before. I wasn't pushed to the limit before. And now I am being pushed to the limit. These people here are a grumbling people. And this is a characteristic we're going to see about they are unthankful. They are complaining. They are quick to judge God. They are quick to assume that God has forgotten them. They are, they are quick to desire death upon themselves. They are quick to forget all the good things that God has ever done for them. And that is a characteristic of us when we grumble. We grumble when we forget every good thing God has done. And all we focus on is the negative thing that's happening in this moment. This very moment, I'm upset about something. Nothing else matters. Nothing else good matters. It doesn't matter that I have my health. It doesn't matter that I have my family, that I have my friends, that I have a church, that I have a whole list of things beyond enumeration that I can list as being good things in my life. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that right now I'm angry at something. And that me being angry at something, I feel justified to fight. I feel justified to lie. I feel justified to yell. I feel justified to fall into all kinds of sin and lust and whatever the case might be, to drink, to do drugs, wha whatever it is, I forget completely everything good that God has done and I focus only on this. Um, in Numbers 11, uh, which also recounts um, this period of time, in 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 the, the the journey of the Israelites, um, even after they are fed, this is what they say in Numbers 11. It says, "Who will give us meat to eat? Because God is going to give them manna, right? So they continue to grumble. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes." So even after God gave them what they need to eat, but they're unsatisfied with the menu. You know, they don't, they don't like what it is that they're eating. And so they continue to grumble against God because they don't like what it is they're eating. These people are wandering in the desert and magical bread is falling from the heavens. And they don't like that. They're not satisfied with the miraculous bread that's falling from, from the sky. That's not good enough for them. Okay, because they, they don't like it. They want to eat something something else. So the issue is not about the food. The issue is about them. They are grumbling. They will grumble at anything. This is a weakness that they have. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Notice also that everything that God is doing is both a blessing and a responsibility. Both, both a blessing and a test at the same time. God is giving them something good, but he's also expecting them to respond in some way. Right? Like they are to respond with faithfulness. They are to respond with obedience. Okay? In some way. God would provide for them, but for them to be filled, they would have to follow the, the, the rules. There would be rules that God is going to place for them. He's not just going to tell them, just go and do whatever you want. No. You, you want me to bless you? You want me to give you this? There are certain things, there are certain rules that you have to follow, and I'm going to test you. Okay? <coughs> the same is true with salvation, our salvation. Yes, we speak about how salvation is a free gift. It's the grace of God. It's undeserved. And God gives it to everyone who wants it. But at the same time, we have a role to play in it. There is something for me to respond to God with it. It is not just that God has done his part of salvation and now suddenly everyone is saved. No, that isn't what Christ said. Right? There is something for us to do to respond to 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 respond to the love of God with our own love for him right which is manifested in following his commandments so he says what well, what are the rules of the manna and it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily okay so he's speaking about this manna and filling up a quota every day but on the sixth day they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So what is this sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in? So this day is the Friday, right? Because the, the he, God is going to institute the Sabbath day, which is a Saturday, and that's the day of rest. That's the day where no one should be working, not because they're going to sleep in. No one should be working because that day is dedicated to God, okay? That day is for God, and that's what he means by rest. He means spiritual rest. It doesn't mean physical rest. Because Sunday is one of the most hectic days. It's not, it's not a, a physically restful day. It's a spiritually restful day. Because it is through that spiritual rest that we find the true rest. This is the true rest in God. Okay? So in the Sabbath, the focus is not just don't do any work. The focus is do the spiritual work instead of doing the, the physical work. And so he said what? On that sixth day, okay, that Friday, the day before, you are going to gather double every other day. And you're going to see that any time they tried to gather more than what they needed for that day and save it for the next day, it would rot, right? They wouldn't be able to keep it. Anyone who tried to take extra one day and save it for the next day so that they would have more or they wouldn't have to gather the next day, that would rot. But on this day, on the Friday, Whatever they gathered, they would gather extra and they would keep it to the next day and it wouldn't rot and that's what they would eat the following day. Which says something to us. I mean, whenever we, we speak about working um, and, and, and not being able to go to church because we're working and all that, God is kind of sending a message here. He's saying, you know, you don't need to work. <laughs> you, you, you obviously, I, I understand that people's schedules and their work schedules oftentimes are out of their control. But he's sending a message here saying, I will take care of you when you dedicate this time, instead of focusing on making money, instead of focusing on your, on your physical work, focus on the spiritual work, and I will bless you, right? This is the reason Chick-fil-A is closed on Sundays, right? It's because of this. So, so 
The other interesting thing is that it says that the sixth day is the Friday. If the sixth day was the Friday, that means that um, the first day was the Sunday. So the first day that manna came down from heaven was on a Sunday. And we know about the, the Lord who said about himself, he said in John chapter 6, he said, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. Indicating what? That the manna was enough to sustain their bodies physically, but they couldn't sustain them forever. And they couldn't sustain them spiritually. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. He's speaking about himself. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So, so it's kind of interesting that the first day that the manna came down was on a Sunday. Okay. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? He's saying, you're coming to us and complaining this is that we have nothing to give. We have nothing we can do. God is the one who is in charge here. God is the one responsible for the food. God is responsible for taking care of us. Why are you coming to us? God is going to demonstrate, as he has done countless times already, his faithfulness to you, right? Because he is going to show you that he cares about you and he has not forgotten you. Instead of you having to complain and grumble against him. Also, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. He's saying, who, who are we that you complain against us, right? Um, some people say that this uh, idea, because here you see him already speaking about the meat, okay? Some people say that, the, this was like a one-time event because later on the people are going to complain about the manna like what I read to you earlier in Numbers, uh, in the book of Numbers. Um, and then God is going to essentially uh, punish them by giving them quail, so much quail that he said quail is going to come out of your nostrils and you're going to hate the quail after all the quail that you're going to eat. But here, this is before that time. So at this point, the people hadn't yet complained about the manna, but he told them that the Lord is going to give you meat to eat in the evening and the morning bread to the full. So some people say that this was like a one-day thing because the people were starving and hungry all along, that he was going to give them this, but that from this point on, he, they were going to be sustained um, by the manna. This is a good stopping point for today. Um, does anyone have any questions or comments before we could end? Yes. Do any of the early fathers relate the manna that comes down every day to uh, give us this day or daily bread? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's related, right? It's related because when we're speaking uh, about give us this day our daily bread, it's not so much a, a request for like the physical bread, but it's the spiritual bread. And the Lord said about himself that he is the spiritual bread. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. So yeah, there, that's definitely uh, related. Yes. So this is somewhat tangential, but it's, um, I feel like it's, I, I wanted to discuss this with a bunch of people at, at this point, so I, I figured I'd just put this out there. Um, you mentioned, I think a few weeks ago, the Benedict option, right? Um, and so and the reason that this is tangential is because you just mentioned the Sabbath and 
dedicating ourselves spiritually than um, uh, not caring so much about jobs and things of that sort. Why isn't there as great of a push in the church to move towards that life? Because ultimately it feels as if because of how attached we are to society as it is, um, that, well, many people tend to be detached spiritually. Um, some people are not, that's not the case with some people, but perhaps if we were much more entrenched in the church, much more deeply rooted, say like, you know, I, my idea is like you create a economic subsystem and then you figure out how to um, live the way that the church in the book of Acts did, right? Uh, with the sharing and the such, that you have that sort of intimacy, uh, th that sort of like um, unity. Why aren't we moving toward that or should we move toward that? It's a big question. So is everyone familiar with the Benedict Option? We had spoken about it a few weeks ago. So the Benedict Option is an option that the Catholic saint, St. Benedict, had proposed, essentially saying that um, the only way for the church to thrive and survive in the world that is a wicked world um, is to uh, essentially completely isolate. We, we have our own cities. We have our own schools. We have our own businesses. We have our own everything. And so we don't have to interact with the world at all and so we can preserve um, ourselves. But I think there's a lot of problems with that. From a political perspective, there's problems because the people who make the laws, okay, you make a law based on your moral beliefs of what is right and wrong. So if the Christians completely separated themselves from all of society, then the people that are left to make the laws are the people that are the complete opposite of Christians. Right, in which case they will outlaw Christianity, <laughs> or outlaw our beliefs, and they will say that the things that we believe are 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 not allowed, and so in the end we're hurting ourselves. Right, so from the one side, we might say, "Yes, well, we are preserving ourselves because we are removing ourselves from bad influences." Okay, which is true, but at the same time, the church was never designed to be separate and isolated. Right. Actually, if the apostles had said from the very beginning, you know what, we have a good thing going, um, we have salvation, we, we received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, let's just stay here in the upper room, you know, and we'll be good Christians and we'll live and we'll be happy and we'll have liturgies and everything will be wonderful, and that's it. But what is it that the command that Christ gave to them? He told them, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because one of the major roles of the church is not just to preserve the purity and to preserve the commandments of God, but is to be a light to the world, as we read before the Philippians, is that even though we are living in a crooked and perverse generation, that we go and, and shine as lights in the darkness in the world for the purpose of salvation to bring other people to God. So this is a fundamental, uh, a fundamental purpose of the church and us as believers to do. So it's a balance. There's a balance where we have to, yes, um, keep ourselves from sin, keep ourselves from bad influence, but that doesn't mean that we completely disappear because what the Lord said that we are to be the salt of the earth, right? So in order to give season to the world, in order to give people the opportunity for salvation, we have to be present. 
right? We have to be present in the world. We can't just completely disappear from the world. So from 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 like a practical perspective, there's problems. From a political perspective, there's problems. From a spiritual perspective, there's problems. So so while it sounds it sounds nice, you know, but but I think that's not really the that's not really the purpose of the church. We would not be fulfilling the commandment of God for evangelism, for instance. That is a commandment, you know. And and the Lord said the laborers are few. The laborers are few because it's a hard job to do, but it's one that we've been called to do. And the Lord, even though he sees that we struggle in the midst of the darkness of the world as we try to save others, I believe that he will reward us for, tr for making our best efforts to doing so. And the Lord works in the hearts of people. The churches have to be around. The churches have to be here, you know, so that people will see the church, that, that, that just the sight of the church would be a sight of conviction to see, like, there, there is something beyond this life. There's a reminder, even for people who don't believe, who knows when they see the church what they will believe? Who knows what God will work in them? So we can't just remove ourselves because we have a service that we do in the church. It's not just about me. It's about how, what we offer to others. Okay. Yeah. So you, you've given me a lot to think about. And uh, you've mentioned that before <laughs> because I'd ask not this question but something about uh, why can't we just all be extremists and just remove ourselves from society, right? Seclude ourselves and whatnot. You'd, you'd, you'd responded to that before. Um, so I guess I, I myself, I, 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 because I figured that would be impractical, that unlikely that would happen, I, I just think to myself, well, when I'm older and if I have a job, at least I want to live as minimalistically as possible. Um, and I want to be able to serve within the church what about, I mean, it, there wouldn't be anything particularly wrong with that. It's like, it's, what, I, what I mean is, it's not a necessity, though, that we, say, work for secular corporations. We could, well, I'm asking, that is, it, it, we could work through the church, and perhaps, I mean, the only thing I think practically is you do need some sense of income, so perhaps you'd need to do a part-time job or something. But otherwise, it's... It's not as if we're obligated to work for, you know, what I perceive as corrupt corporations for the most part who have their own uh, ideals and strivings. And to contribute to that seems counterproductive even. Well, I mean, if, if, there, if there is a business that is Christian-owned or Orthodox-owned and, and you prefer to work for such a business, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a good thing, Right. We're still we're still present in the world um, and able to do our our service of evangelism and being a light to the world and so on even in that situation. So there's uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think the Benedict option is more than that. It's a complete separation of all Christians from the rest of the world. Like like we take over Australia, and we just <laughs> we're only there, and the rest of the world goes on as as it's however it goes. And we are only in, uh, in, only in one isolated place. And we have our own cities and we have everything, right? I believe that is maybe the, the ultimate, you know, version of the Benedict option. Obviously, you don't get from here to there in one step. But, but as, as just as a principle, I think, there's a, I think there's a problem with that. Yeah. I, I hadn't read it or anything. I'd heard of it from you and prior to that from a podcast very briefly. 
So I assumed it to not be so extreme. That does seem a little extreme. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to to completely separate yourself from all secular influence, um, you can't be, you can't even stay in a country that has fundamentally different um, morals than you, because they will impose it on you. Uh, so I, I don't think you can fully realize that goal unless you do something like that. Okay, Sharif, were you gonna ask something? Okay, let's pray. I'm going to question. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so, uh, so, so you mentioned that Saturday in the Sabbath day. Oh, why is Sunday not the Sabbath day? I mean, uh, shouldn't Sunday be considered the Sabbath day because nobody works on Sunday? So in the Old Testament, the Lord instituted Saturday as the Sabbath day because it was the day that the Lord rested after the creation. So the, the Lord created for six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and that's that was the Sabbath day, and so the Lord instituted Saturday as a Sabbath day. After the resurrection, the church changed the Lord's day from being Saturday to being Sunday because that was the day of resurrection. So that was a change that happened in the New Testament. It wasn't uh, from the time of the Old Testament. Okay. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, for your guidance, your guidance and your mercy and love upon us. We ask, O God, that you be with us and direct us and fill us, O Lord, with your Holy Spirit and help us to be a light to the world and help us, O God, to strive and strive.